Well, good morning, family. John Cass has uh, always wanted to be a professional ball player. And despite spending four years in the California Angels minor league organization, he never really made it to the pros. And so he decided that he would volunteer to do something so that he could stay near the professional scene. And so he, he was a very strong Christian man. And so he volunteered to be a chaplain for the Chicago Bears. During their 1985 season, which they won the Super Bowls, I don't know how many of your Bears fans, but they won the Super Bowl that year, they had a coach by the name of Mike Ditka. And Mike Ditka was a tough guy, and known as just a very solid individual. But Mike uh, had, a, had a background, and he thought that it would be lucky for them if they would say the Lord's Prayer before they went out to the football game every, every week. And so he would always call on somebody to lead that. So John's sitting in the locker room listening to his pregame speech, and Ditka says, okay, I'm going to give, and before I give my speech, uh, Fridge, and Fridge was William Perry. He's a big 300-plus-pound guy that they call the refrigerator. And he said, Fridge, I want you to lead the Lord's Prayer for me before we go out on the field. And Fridge goes, okay. And he looks like a deer in the headlights, and he starts sweating. And so Ditka finishes up his pep talk, and as he's doing so, Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback of the team, reaches over and uh, taps John on the shoulder and says, Hey, John, I bet you he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And John said, Of course he knows the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. And McMahon says, I tell you what, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And John says, We're betting on the Lord's Prayer in the locker room? He says, Okay, because I know he knows it. So... Ditka finishes his speech. He says, okay, Fridge, lead us. And Fridge opens his hands and says, now I lay me down to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And so Jim McMahon punches John on the shoulder and he says, okay, I owe you 50 bucks. I didn't think he knew it. (laughs) Now, as hard as I tried, I could not make that fit into the message. But this is a pretty heavy topic today, and I wanted you to have a little levity before we deal with it and enjoy yourselves. What brings you joy in life? For many people, they would say family, which is very appropriate. Some would say, I get joy by going to work. Other people might say, I get joy when I leave work. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we know that our relationship with Jesus Christ forms some of the foundation of the greatest joys that we have in life. But what really brings us joy? Today I'm going to talk to you about how can I increase my joy. The principle is found for us in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'm going to do just chapter 8 today, and in a couple of weeks, Pastor Kurt's going to finish up the sermon, and he's going to do chapter 9 on this topic. But we want you to increase your joy, and here's the principle that I want to emphasize this morning. To increase our joy, according to the biblical principle, to increase our joy, we need to learn the secret of spirit-filled giving. A couple of months ago, I was in a board of trustees meeting at a small Midwestern Christian college. And that in itself is rather unusual because usually people who are on the board of trustees are either very influential or very wealthy. And I'm neither, so you're saying, how did you get on there? Well, there's a glitch in Christian colleges' systems. 
And that is, when you're a Christian college, you have to have so many pastors on the board. And so just like they have a DH in, uh, in baseball, they have a DP in Christian colleges, the designated pastor. So I was a designated pastor. Didn't know particularly what I was doing, but I showed up for the meetings every time. Free meal, you know, what can you say? And so... In this meeting, we were talking about how to raise some money for financial for the institution, and a man by the name of Bill Gaither, Bill Gaither spoke up, and he said this, and I want to quote him, and he said, people want to give, they love to give, but the saddest thing that I hear is this, Bill, I just can't give. My lifestyle has buried me with obligations, and I have nothing left to give. For the Christian, nothing kind of tests our spiritual commitment to following Jesus Christ as to what we do with our finances. Now, money is neutral. It's neither positive nor negative. We can use it for great things. We can abuse it. Or there are other things that we can do with it which are not healthy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this says to us, it's not money. It's the greed that comes from love of money. And when we begin to put money as the central focus of our life and everything that we do revolves around it, we get into some dangerous territory. In fact, it is some territory that can lead to some major problems in our life, just as Bill was talking about. The Bible is the greatest resource material you will ever find on finances because it says to us in many different ways, we should earn all we can honestly, we should save all we can prudently, and we should give all we can generously. God thinks that this area of our life is pretty important. We know that 16 of the 38 parables deal with money and possessions. There's more than 2,000 verses that deal with this topic in the Scripture. Now, to your great relief, I'm not going to read all 2,000 here this morning. But how important is money to you? What would you do for $10 million? In 1991, there was a book that came out entitled, The Day America Told the Truth. It's a really fascinating book, and they interviewed thousands of people and asked them various probing questions, and this was one of the questions that they asked them, what would you do for $10 million? And their answers were quite disturbing, and go back to our understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he says the love of money can cause all kinds of difficulties. 25% of the people said that they would abandon their faith. Now, this does not mean just Christianity. This was any faith that they had in any kind of a religious organization or structure. They would abandon it for, 10, for, excuse me, for $10 million. 23% said that they would be a prostitute for a week. Sorry, I hit it backwards. 16% said they would get a divorce or leave their family. Don't listen to this, Carol. This is one that really amazes me. 7% said they would murder a stranger if they knew they could get away with it. That's one out of every 14 people. So look around. There may be some people around here that you might not want to associate with too much. And 3% said they would put their children up for adoption. Now, some of you probably would do it for a lot less than that, but that's a totally, (laughs) totally different issue that we're going to talk about here today. 
But here is the reason why spirit-filled giving is so important and why God talks about it so much. And here it is. We make a living by what we get. Money is necessary. It's the oil of our society. We need it. We have to have those kind of resources. Our society determines our success by this principle. We make a living by what we get. But for Christianity and for Christians, we make a life by what we give. That measures significance. Success is secular, and it's not wrong. Significance is spiritual. So let's take a look at the scriptures and turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They're on your app also, and I also will be putting them on the screen here in front of you. A little bit of background about this scripture. The Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He has passed through Corinth about a year prior to this time and then gone on to other places. As he was traveling through his journey in various cities and towns and places where he was speaking, he was asking them to take a collection up for the church that was at Jerusalem, which was the mother church. There had been a lot of persecution that had been taking place. If you read Acts, you understand that. But also there was a famine that had come through Jerusalem, and the people had become impoverished. And so he was asking individuals if they would mind to help in giving this collection and helping the people at the church at uh, Jerusalem. And here's the principle that we're going to find from this first one, and that is this. Spirit-filled givers recognize that giving is a grace from God. Verse 1 says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about what? The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He is talking to them saying the Macedonians have already given. They did it because of grace. Interestingly enough, four times in the next ten verses, he talks about giving as an act of grace. Now, we recognize that almost all of the scriptures in the Bible that deal with grace talk about salvation grace. God loves you so much that he's willing to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God gives to you freely. He doesn't ask for things in return. He just gives to you because he loves you. And for by grace are we saved through faith. That is the primary way in which grace is used in the scriptures. But in these 10 verses and in chapters 8 and 9, he talks about giving as an act of grace. And he says, these people gave without any thought of return. They gave simply because they loved the Lord. They gave not because of some reward that they would get back or because they had to. They just simply gave because they they wanted to. Verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He said these people were generous. But look at this. Have you ever done one of those quizzes or tests where they say, which one of these is not like the other? Well, take a look here. you got a very severe trial, and you have overflowing joy, and you have extreme poverty. One of those doesn't seem to fit real well, does it? But we know that we said, they said here that this Macedonian church said, even though they were poor, the Macedonian, by the way, was north part of Greece. That's where Philippi and Thessalonica were located. 
And that particular section had been overrun by the Romans some years before. And they had basically plundered the entire community and the entire region. They had uh, taken many of those individuals into slavery. It was a very impoverished area. And he said that even these individuals who have gone through all these severe trials, they gave generously. You see, the joy of giving is not in the amount. It's in the attitude of our hearts. You can be a very wealthy individual with much means and be a miser. Or you can be an individual with very limited means and be a generous person. Generosity is not tied to the amount. It's tied to the act of grace that God has given you. Several years ago when I was pastoring in Vero Beach, Florida, which is on the other coast, Every year, we had work camps that went to uh, Guatemala, and we did them repeatedly, sometimes two or three times a year. We helped those churches down there. And I would go about once a year, and when I went, usually uh, I would take somebody with me, and the national leader there's name was Isai Calderon. And Isai and I would get in his Jeep, and we would just go all over the country, and we'd speak, and et cetera, and hold conventions and stuff like that. And so one time Isai and I were on the road and our work camp group was building something and he and I were and another person were traveling. And we went up off the main road and way back up in the boondocks and I had my youth pastor with him and this is a poor guy, he's naive, he'd never been out of the United States type of thing. And we're back and kept going further and further into the boondocks and he looked at me and he says, you know, I know Matthew says that God will be with us even to the ends of the earth. I think we found it. And so, so we went there, no electricity. We went there. I spoke. After we spoke, um, the pastor of the church and his wife said, would you come and eat with us? Now, normally we took our own food with us, or sometimes if we were near a town, we would stop and get something to eat. But in this case, Esau, he looked at me and said, of course, we would be happy. We would be privileged. We would be honored to do so. So there was about five or six of us. We sat down at the table and the lady had prepared a chicken that the six, five or six of us shared together. And later, Isai told me this story. He said, Tom, you don't realize what that chicken meant to that lady and that family. That's probably the only chicken they will have for several days. And, of course, I immediately felt about this tall. I said, oh, my, Isai, I didn't know that. We, sh- we should have not done that. I would, I would have never done that. He said, no. We did exactly the right thing. He said, we allowed them to receive the joy of Christ by their giving. God will bless them for that. They wanted to do that. They wanted to be used by him. You know, generous people are the happiest people in the world. The word miser and miserable comes from the same root word. We don't want to be miserable. Okay, let's look at verses 3 and 4. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They considered it a privilege to give. Giving is not a punishment. It's a privilege. Giving is not an obstacle to overcome. It's an opportunity to embrace Paul says, we didn't beg them to give. They begged us to receive our gifts. Now, in all of my years of pastoring, I have to admit to you that not one single time 
Have I ever had somebody stand up and said, we want another offering, please. Can we please give some more money today? I just never had that happen. (laughs) They pleaded with him. Can we give more? Who are these people anyway? Well, Paul's not talking to CEOs from the Rotary Club. Paul is talking to people, common people, just like you and I. They have no ladder to climb. They have no retirement program. They have no savings account. They have virtually very little resources, but they simply gave. Which brings us to principle two. Why would somebody give like that? And here's that principle. Spirit-filled givers give because of a love for God. Verses 5 and 6. And they exceeded our expectations. Listen to this. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion, here we go again, this act of grace on your part. Spirit-filled givers simply give because they love God and they have a compassion for people. But they give themselves first to God. All of this concerning giving does not have meaning unless we first give ourselves to God. Because the single most important thing you will ever do in your life is to accept the offer of Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior. The single most important thing you will ever do is to give yourself first to God and say, I want to follow you by faith. I don't want this just to be an off and on thing. I want to commit my life to you. I want to give myself to you. And once we do that, everything else seems to have a way of falling into place. Verse 7 and 8. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge... In complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled into you. That's a pretty good person right there, isn't it? They've excelled in all of these things. See that you also excel in this, what do they call it? This grace of giving. Giving is an act of grace. He says, wait a minute, one more verse. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Verse 2 says they did this entirely on their own. He says, I'm not forcing you to do this. I'm not begging you to do this. I'm just presenting the read. We should never be pressured into giving. That's not biblical. Making people feel guilty so that they give is not godly. Putting people under submission of a heavy load is not godly. Laying a heavy burden on them is not godly. And one of the many things that I appreciate about Uh, Pastor Kurt, among many, is this. We don't do that. Kurt says, here's the principles of Scripture. Here's our needs. You give yourself first to God and then decide what you want to do with that. You know, Pastor Kurt is a lot smarter than I thought he was. I always thought he was smart. He gave me the topic of giving and he left town on vacation. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Kurt. You couldn't give me love or joy or peace. No, you got to give me giving. But anyway... The joy of giving. (laughs) You know, we don't give because we have to. Giving because you have to is called taxation. That's what the government does. Giving because you love to is called an offering unto God. 
we give out of our love for Jesus the Christ and compassion for others. So spirit-filled giving is an act of grace that we do because we love God. The next principle is this. Spirit-filled givers follow the example of Jesus. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Let me ask you a question. If you have a son or a daughter, who would you most like for them to be like? Now, your immediate answer probably would be me, you know, myself, father, mother, whatever. But I don't want my sons to be just like me. I have frailties. I have problems. I have issues. I'm not perfect in a lot of different ways. I want them to be like Jesus. I want them to be followers of Jesus. Now, we try to do, Carol and I try to do the principles. We try to teach them values. We try to be good examples for them. I don't want them to be like me. I want them to be like Jesus. I want them to have the heart of Jesus. I want them to love like Jesus does. I want them to have the attitudes that Jesus has. I want them to give like Jesus gave. Because Paul says the giving does not start when Jesus went to the cross. He said Jesus, the gift of Jesus started when he said, I'm in heaven. I've got everything I want. I need nothing. I have everything at my disposable. I am willing to lay down and come down into this earth. I'm willing to take on humanity. I'm willing to take on the humility of being a servant, having no place to call my own. I'm willing to talk and share the stories. Why am I willing to do that? And eventually I'm willing to die on the cross so that you, being poor, might be what? Spiritually rich. And it says, as we follow Jesus, we do those things because we love him. The leader of any organization can't expect the people under his or her control to sacrifice unless they are willing to sacrifice. He didn't do this for himself. He did it for us. So spirit-filled giving is simply an act of grace that we do because of our love for Jesus Christ, our compassion for others. As we follow the example of Jesus himself. And fourth, spirit-filled givers are a conduit of God's blessings. If you have chapter 8 open, let's go down and read verses 13 through 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. So that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. You know, the Bible teaches us in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes down from God the Father, with whom there is no changing. We know that everything we have is a gift from God. And we are thankful for it. Spirit-filled givers recognize that as we are blessed, we have a responsibility to bless others. As we receive, we have a responsibility to be a conduit and bless other people. We are not blessed so that we can hoard it all to ourselves. We are not to be storage tanks. We're to be pipelines of God's blessings as we pass them along to other people. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. 
Have any of you ever heard of a lady by the name of, of uh, Helmsley? Um, yeah. <laughs> Leona Helmsley? Leona Helmsley was born in a very poor society. She was very poor all the time as she was growing up. She resented that fact very much. She got out of high school. She got a job. And she met a man. And she did something that totally changed her life. She married a multimillionaire. That has a tendency to do it, you know. And so immediately she went from an individual who was in poverty and rags and riches and very poor to an individual that had a lot. And Leona Helmsley then, her husband gave her um, a real estate organizational structure and she did very well with it. In fact, she turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. He also provided her with the uh, ability to hire and to own motels and hotels, and she became a hotelier, and she just had all kinds of money. And so she went from being poor to being a very, very wealthy individual. But what was she like? Here's a picture of Leona. A real sweetie, isn't she? When you read stories about her, she refused to pay bills. When she would have individuals that would come and do work for her, she would try to make them give, charge less. She would give them less than what they had asked for. She was an individual that was described as a tyrant. She was an individual that had very few friends. She was an individual that was totally estranged from her family. When her son was 40 years old, he died suddenly of a heart attack. He was living in a house where she was helping him to buy it. And he had a wife and four kids. Instead of allowing them to have it, by this time she's a billionaire, by the way. Instead of allowing his daughter, her daughter-in-law and four kids to have the house, she sued them to retain ownership of the house, and she won. And so she took all of the assets of her son and left a widow and four kids homeless and with less than $3,000 to live on. So what do you think about Leona Helmsley? Well, in 1989, she was convicted of income tax evasion. A woman who was a billionaire refused to pay a few thousand dollars in income taxes. And she was heard to say at the uh, trial, I don't pay taxes. Only little people pay taxes. So when you look at her life, what do you see? An individual that was supremely blessed. When she died, she had a $5 billion, with a B, a $5 billion estate. Her husband had long since passed away. Remember, she is the lady who gave $12 million to take care of her dog. You remember that? I volunteered to help the dog out, but no, no. <laughs> Many people wanted to take care of that dog for $12 million. Now, on the other hand, let me tell you about another story about a guy by the name of Rick Warren. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church out in California. Rick Warren began the church. It was very modest. It began to grow. And in 1993, they decided they needed to have a building fund program because they had outgrown their facilities. So at the time, Rick Warren was the senior pastor, and he was making $50,000 a year. He and his wife uh, decided, what should they give to this campaign? So they prayed about it for a while, and one day, Rick comes into the kitchen, and he says to his wife, I believe we should give $100,000 to this campaign. And his wife said, what? Are you crazy, Rick? We don't even have a savings account. That's twice our, our annual income. How in the world would we possibly give $100,000? And 
And Rick said, I don't really know the answer to that. I just know this is what I think God wants us to do. So they made the pledge card. They gave it. Four weeks later, four weeks, four weeks later, he received a call from a publishing company and said, Rick, we heard you've been working on a book called The Purpose Driven Life. We would like to purchase the rights to that book. You will get royalties from every copy that is sold. But in addition to that, we'd like to give you a bonus. We'd like to give you an upfront payment of $150,000. Would that be okay with you, Rick? (laughs) Now, that's not the end of the story. That's a great story. But Rick went on to write other books and become a multimillionaire. But Rick went back to his church. He went back to the treasurer and he said, I want you to add up all the money you have ever given me since I began the church. He did so. Rick gave it all back. Now Rick gives 90% of his income to the church and to religious causes. Why would you do that, Rick? Because he understands the principle of spirit-filled giving. This was his quote, and I'm quoting him. I gave it all back because I didn't want anyone to think that I do what I do for money. I do it because I love Jesus Christ. Leona Helmsley hoarded it all, died. Rick Warren passed it along. Generosity unleashes the resources of God. Our resources are limited. God's isn't. Now, don't relax. Don't worry. We're not taking another offering. Not passing out any pledge cards today. But I want to ask you this question. Do you have joy in your giving? Are you a spirit-filled giver? Because spirit-filled givers recognize it's not my own. This is an act of grace that I do voluntarily because I love Jesus. I have compassion for others. I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to be an example of the blessings that he has blessed me with to pass some along to other people. So how can I be a spirit-filled giver? You'll discover the joy of giving when your motivation is love. Your motivation is not fear. It's not pressure. It's not obligation. Your motivation is, I just love Jesus. I love his people. I love his work. I love his kingdom. I want to give. Your attitude is thankfulness. You don't talk about what you don't have. The Macedonian church didn't do that. They said, we want to talk about what we have. We are so thankful for the way God has blessed us. And you know what the result of all of that is from verses 2 and 3? Joy and blessedness. Father, we love you today. I thank you for your word because it gives us so many principles on which to live. It tells us about all kinds of things, how we can come into a relationship with you, a good relationship with our spouse and other people. But it tells us how we should handle the blessings that you have given to us. And we thank you for that. We know that we're a generous people. But we want to overflow in joy, not because of the amount, but because you have blessed us so much, we want to be a joy to others. Would you stand with me, please? At this time, I'd like to ask our prayer partners if they would come forward. If you have any kind of a prayer need or desire that you want to talk about, these are people who love you, people who care about you and be willing to pray with you. If you've never taken that first step of giving yourself first to the Lord, this is a time when that can happen this morning. 
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed.